So Lisa, this week, of course, there's lots of things popping off in social media and elsewhere. Um, and you probably get tired of getting messages through like every method of communication. It's text, it's uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. DMs, it's there's Instagram, a lot. <laughs> you it, right? Because there's so much foolishness to share, right, Lisa? Um, but look, Pete Buttigieg, okay, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing his last name correctly, but Pete has been quoted about using the language wrong side of the tracks. And I thought it was so interesting that, you know, I had to send it over to you. He mentioned the very fact that we have the phrase wrong side of the tracks in American English tells you that there's something wrong with how infrastructure is supposed to connect people when it actually divides people along racial lines and so forth. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. Pete, I love that he named that very clearly. And then we have a, a replay of the Lizzo situation that we talked about in a previous podcast with Beyonce removing the language, quote, spaz from one of her new songs um, on her new album, Renaissance. And so, you know, I keep looking at all these changes and adjustments and naming of language. And I think we should be really critical of how language is used whether the context matters or not. I, I think all of this is worth exploring here, Lisa. Yeah, I agree. And it's interesting because I was in a meeting and I had used the phrase low hanging fruit. And then I had mentioned it to you in this context and you had pointed out that there's some problematic um, overtones or undertones um, with that phrasing. And so I actually think we should spend the next 30 minutes or so just going through idioms and phrases and words that have connotations or clear racist um, mm -hmm. origins, because I, I just mm -hmm. think that we say so much, like you mentioned, like the wrong side of the tracks, right? I mean, how many times do we hear mm -hmm. that? But really understanding mm -hmm. um, the background, I think, can help us be more inclusive. Mm -hmm. So let's dive in. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold, and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield, and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. Age is just a number, but your health is a science. People age at different speeds, some faster, some slower. That means the date that marks your birthday may not represent your body's actual biological age. That's why Inside Tracker developed InnerAge 2.0. This proprietary AI-driven platform reveals how your body is aging and provides a personalized, science-backed action plan to help you get younger from the inside out. We believe that your best self isn't behind you, it's within you. And by looking at the science of your health and longevity, you can discover the personalized path to living healthier and longer. So, if you want to continue doing the activities you love with the people you love for the rest of your life, it's time to turn back the clock with InnerAge 2.0. For a limited time, feisty listeners can take 20% off your entire Inside Tracker order, including InnerAge 2.0. Just visit insidetracker.com forward slash feisty. Whether you're competing in a triathlon or swimming to challenge yourself, Orca has fit for purpose swimwear designed to meet your needs. 
Innovation has always been part of Orca's DNA. And when it came to the development of their new triathlon wetsuits, a wide range of skill levels and different types of triathletes were taken into account. Whether you're looking for maximum flexibility, maximum buoyancy, or somewhere in between, Orca wetsuits are designed to help you achieve better performance in the water. It is performance made simple. For 15% off all items at orca.com, use the code IRONWOMEN15. So Lisa, I know for our, <laughs> our 3.2 fans that follow us out there that listen to our podcast, um, you know, I know that they are probably still remembering, hopefully, uh, episode 80, where we talked about stale language, especially in the DEI space, uh, because it's so easy to lose track of language. Um, and so, you know, you and I, especially in this space professionally, we're always trying to keep up with language, how language evolves over time. But I think this conversation, this conversation is going in the other direction in that we're looking at the root of the language um, and what it might indicate and how it might be both off-putting and divisive when that is not at all what we want to do. So I think this is distinct and we hear language that pops up every day around us um, that mm -hmm, we, mm -hmm. I think we need to stop and think about instead of just kind of glossing through on, yeah. you know, too quickly. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think in many of the cases with the phrases we're going to highlight here, um, the origins are debated or not clear. Um, but ultimately, just because a phrase or a word does not have a negative origin doesn't mean that it has not evolved to become negative or to become a racial slur. And so I think what we should hold as we move through this conversation is origins matter to a point as does context. But if someone is telling you that what you're saying is hurtful or harmful or problematic, then just stop saying it. Like, I don't think there needs to be a whole long discussion about whether or not the word means what you think it is and that it originated um, with Aristotle in Greek times years ago, blah, -de blah, blah, right? Like that doesn't really matter if you have harmed someone in the present day. So I just... <laughs> You know, because I, I can I can hear it. I can hear hear the disagreement, um, not necessarily from our listeners, but from other folks um, around um, being very precise around how something evolved historically. And it's OK to use it now because it wasn't intended that way originally. And here we go with glorifying intention over impact. Well, it wasn't intended that way, nor did I intend it that way. So therefore, I have license to use this language. Nah, that's not going to fly. And, you know, Lisa, I remember one of my professors at JMU many, many years ago um, who said this probably had a little bit of shade on it, but I, I take her at her word, especially given that she was an English professor. She said that it is the lowest form of intelligence to continue to use only one set of words when there are so many. Right. And so given that, I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to adhere to her policy on that, her perspective on that, because, you know, even if that may be one of your favorite phrases that rolls off your tongue, it's still like, wait a minute, it's 
harmful to someone. And there are so many other options that you can use. I mean, Lisa, I've been going through the same process myself just with uh, working through ableist language and trying to find language, even as I stumble and don't sound as uh, articulate as I would love to, me sounding articulate is not as important as the people that I'm harming by using language that's not appropriate as I'm learning. Um, and so I'm I'm okay with with sounding like I'm bumbling for a little bit until I I become more smooth with it. And so I I appreciate your point around yeah it's it's not okay and uh, let's not create these diversions when these could be some changes that we can make right. So look I had no idea about the peanut gallery. How many times have I used the peanut gallery? Ugh. Yeah, I've definitely used it multiple times in the past. Mm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So this phrase, y'all, the peanut gallery, usually refers to the cheapest seats in a theater. Um, and it's usually informally used to describe critics or hecklers. I've even seen it, for example, in U.S. political debates um, where there's kind of a group of people um, that are referred to. And so, you know, when someone says no comments from the peanut gallery, it implies that a certain group of commentators are rowdy, uninformed, et cetera. So that kind of um, indicates who they think is sitting in that area. Now, Lisa, this may be connected. I don't know if it is or not because I'm not a linguist, that type of thing. But um, I remember quite clearly, most of you all know if you've been listening to this podcast for any time at all, um, I am originally from Southern Virginia, and my mother talks about it quite a bit, where um, there was a movie theater, small movie theater in my hometown that's now being re refurbished. Uh, but when my mother, who will turn 70 in a couple of years, when she was a small child, um, there are two different levels to that theater. You have the floor seating, and then you also have the balcony seating. When she was a small child, the balcony seating was only for African-Americans and white individuals could sit on the floor and sit uh, in, in better seating um, as far as better view of the movie or the play. And the balcony area was referred, in fact, to as the peanut gallery. And so I don't know if that is the original origin of it, but it was used as a derogatory phrase back then. Um, and so that's um, one of the things that I learned more recently talking to my mom. I remembered her talking about um, having to go into the balcony, but I wasn't quite sure why um, or how it was described. And she said, yeah, that was called the peanut gallery back then. So mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. interesting, interesting. Yes, I I. I'm 95% sure that it's associated with the segregation and what you're talking about. And then the stereotype around eating peanuts and throwing peanuts and um, on high, right? So it's definitely 95% mm -hmm. um, definitely <laughs> of racist origins, mm -hmm. then, I think. And mm -hmm. then the, the, what you shared about it being connected to kind of uninformed people, rowdy people, right? It's kind of feeding into that white narrative around African-American people being less than. So that is definitely one to cross off our list and to not say anymore, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, the next one we have on our list is grandfathered in. And I never really understood this term and it is a term that's used in the UK, but um, likely has different origins, I would guess. I haven't actually researched it in that context, but here 
right? This um, it are it originates from disenfranchisement, where uh, white communities would prevent African American people from voting, and they would create they created a rule that if your grandfather could vote, then you could vote in the upcoming election. But obviously, um, at the time when African Americans were uh, had access to the vote, right after slavery, none of their grandfathers could vote. Right. And so therefore they were excluded That's from the right. ballot box. And um, that has been a term now that you hear in all different contexts, but that's what it comes back to. It comes back to the original disenfranchisement of African-American, Black Americans um, after Reconstruction. So also a phrase I think we should avoid. Well, and I cannot tell you how many times, especially in higher ed, when we were thinking about policy and so forth, and you're thinking about, you know, who's already been under the old policy, and we're about to change it to the new policy. And the easiest phrase we kind of brought in was, oh, well, let's just grandfather those folks into the new policy that were here beforehand. And so, you know, thinking about, you know, the alternative language to that, um, because again, you know, we're we're striking some language from uh, from our vocabulary here, and also challenging you at the very same time to think about a replacement. You know, what would we say instead? Because you know, I wasn't aware that this was uh, kind of embedded into. Look, Stacey Abrams probably knew it was embedded. <laughs> Um, that it was directly connected to voting rights or the lack thereof here in the United States. So. Nah, I'm not interested in continuing to replay that narrative that we do not want to adhere to. So interesting. That's an interesting one. So now, Lisa, you took me back on this next one with the cakewalk, right? Um, I remember being a little kid um, at Mosley Heights Elementary School right across the street from my grandparents' house where um, we used to have, whether it was a field day or a fundraiser or what have you, and there was always a cakewalk involved in those quote unquote celebrations. And so the cakewalk, it was originally created uh, as a dance that was performed by enslaved people um, on plantations before the Civil War. And the goal of the cakewalk was actually to mock the way white people danced. Isn't that interesting? Um, and so, plantation owners often interpreted slaves movements as unskillful attempts to be like them. And so, you know, this was really interesting to me that Black people were attempting to somewhat empower themselves by mocking the white folks who owned them. Um, and so then owners flipped it. Owners held contests in which enslaved people competed for a cake. And that's exactly what we used to do at those field days and those game days was that you did the cakewalk competing for a specific cake that you wanted, right? Um, and so then later on, it was connected to minstrel shows and so forth. You're prancing around, you tilt your head back. Um, and so it's really interesting that um, I didn't know, obviously as a kid, I didn't know that at the time, but yeah, that was something that enslaved black people did to mock the way white people danced. And I'm sorry, but I do not want to connect with anything that connects with a previous slave owner or anything having to do with that period of African-American experience. I'm sorry. I just don't want to connect with that. Yeah. And I had not heard of this phrase before I came to the U.S. So it feels like oh. a pretty, um, geographically located concept. Mm -hmm. 
Um, mm-hmm. And it's also used like that, like people will say, that's a cakewalk, right? That's easy. And so in the, in the context of um, racing yeah. or training, right? Think about yeah, yeah. use that term to describe a racing or training experience or something that you're looking forward to or something mm. that's fun, right? Because yeah, there yeah. is that problematic yeah. history. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's that, that flat run or that downhill, whatever. Oh, that's going to be a cakewalk. No problem. Uh, Yeah. I I get it now. Yep. Yep. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. All right. Our next one is um, monkeying around or any kind of reference Mm -hmm. that includes monkeying. Um, And I'm going to throw us back here to Mm -hmm. that, that Florida guy, Ron DeSantis, um, the governor of Florida, who, when in uh, 2018, when he was running, um, he referenced his Democratic opponent, who uh, was Af- is African American, and he had talked about uh, him being articulate, which is a problem. Um, we don't actually we're not covering that today, but that's something um, mm-hmm. to think about using that term in relation to African American Black people in the U.S. context in particular. But he is uh, quoted as saying, "The last thing we need to do is monkey this up by trying to embrace a socialist agenda with high tax increases and bankrupting the state." I mean, I'm not even going to go down the road with the socialism thing, but the use of the term monkey this up when his opponent um, is an African-American man is precise and uh, purposeful, right? And so he is making a connection there. Um, And he got a lot of heat for this comment. I'm not sure if he apologized, probably not, but certainly it is, um, it's not a, it's not directly racist, right? But it's a dog whistle. And a lot of these uh, phrases that we're talking about here are, have evolved to be dog whistles. Um, I'm wondering what you think about this one, Shauna. Yeah, I, I do think it is a, a dog whistle. And what I think is really interesting is that um, I'm working with a client right now who heard this type of language pretty recently. Um, and what I find really fascinating is that, and please, y'all write in or, or let us know what you've experienced, but I have never heard this language used when there wasn't a Black person involved in the exchange. Never. And I've heard it on several occasions, whether it was, you know, in the public sphere or um, in a workplace and so forth. And it was constantly in situations where there was a Black person present or involved. And that's what makes me question it. That's what makes me say, no, it's not just about an animal. And, you know, it's it's not just about that. Um, and we in the United States know that um, that monkeys have been used as a direct reference to African-Americans for decades. And so given that, I would just steer clear of it altogether, altogether. I would completely still steer clear of monkeys, steer clear of um, even the, the connections to monkeys. For example, there's been really um, heinous hate activity in connection to, for example, throwing bananas at Black people, anything in relation to that, I would completely avoid because, again, I've never seen a situation where this phrase uh, was articulated and and it didn't have a Black person connected to it. It's a shame. It's a shame. Now, Lisa, this gets interesting to me because I I have to remind myself not to become desensitized to the language of lynching because I was literally born in Lynchburg, Virginia. Okay. And so given that I have to remind myself not to, uh, not to disconnect from what that really means. um, But 
the language lynch mob, right? And, and I've heard uh, people use this language and, you know, it seems like it should be a no-brainer that lynch, wait a minute, let me think, no-brainer might, have, might not have been appropriate either to say, but lynch mob, <laughs> it seems like it would be relatively common sense not to use that language because of the longstanding history of lynching in this country directly connected to African-Americans and to enslaved people. Um, and also, too, there are so many other options. I mean, it, it seems like, you know, there's a, there's a vendetta or someone's being chased or so like someone's out to get someone. You know, what does that mean exactly? And why would that be relevant in any context um, when it comes to work, play, athletics? Why would that be relevant anywhere? And, you know, if you've done any type of, of reading or understanding about lynch mobs, Lynch mobs were groups usually of white males, heavily armed white males that went out looking for anyone that seemed to be African-American and usually lynched them as an example to other African-Americans of things not to do. Okay, and so given that, it's extremely important to be aware of this. Lynch mobs that actually um, uh, were in Black houses of worship, for example. I think I've shared with y'all on this podcast before, Lisa, and maybe I should kind of share a little bit of a, a trigger warning here. Um, again, my grandmother is 96 years old and she has witnessed two lynchings, one of which was in her church. One of them involved a lynch mob that chased an African-American man into her home church. And so given that, I just don't see where a lynch mob should ever be appropriate in any context in this country, ever. Ever, ever, ever. So, mm -hmm. I mean, like, how, can we just not use the word right. lynch unless we're referring directly to the history that we're trying to describe? Like, right. I, I just don't think there's any time or place where the word is appropriate for anything. Yeah, all. and I want to underscore your point around that desensitization because I think some of these um, phrases that we're talking about, I can definitely hear folks saying we're being too sensitive or overreacting, you know, the whole gaslighting thing, but it's a product of desensitization, right? Particularly for individuals who did not experience that personally or in their history, there's not an emotional connection to it. So it's really easy to say to someone else, um, you're being too um, sensitive about this. And I think that that is a, 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 real, yes, a yes, real problem yes. in our culture that we have become desensitized, you know, thinking about gun violence, which is obviously not the subject of this, but um, there is a desensitization around violence. And you think about all the ways in which violence is pulled into our language, right? Like, yes, um, yes I'll yes. take shotgun for the front seat or shooting yourself in the foot, or I'll take a stab at that, things like that, right? And we just don't really make that connection that it's actually promoting a culture of violence by using it mm -hmm. so frequently. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to, a couple here that I want to make sure we get in. So uppity, and then um, this is a, a phrase or a word that was used to describe uh, black people by white people, describing black people um, who they thought were not deferential enough, right? So the term is, that's where it derives from, uppity. And I have definitely used it. I have definitely heard oh, it. Oh, yes. Uppity yeah. Negroes. Uppity mm -hmm. Negroes is what uh, individuals used to be. Um, people um, such as Langston Hughes and and many other icons of uh, the Black community, yes, were referred to as uppity Negroes, including Dr. King as well. So yeah, that's pretty commonplace language, sadly. 
but but you're bringing up a point though. A lot of people have said uppity and not knowing that Negro was connected to that for many many years. And it's a hugely negative connotation. And I think about it where I've heard it mostly in the context of women, right? Women are uppity. Ooh. Like they're not approachable. They're difficult. They're uppity, right? But it's it's ultimately the same underlying um, uh, meaning that you're stepping out of your uh, role and you're not being deferential enough to men or to white people, right? It's the same kind of context there. Yes, 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 yes. Absolutely. Okay, so Absolutely. Tell me, tell me about this low-hanging fruit thing that I got schooled on very recently. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, low-hanging fruit. So, you know, actually, Lisa, people can probably go back to um, the episode where I was sharing about uh, going down to Charleston, South Carolina, and being able to see um, the historical landmark um, of the Angel Oak. Um, and the Angel Oak is a beautifully large, expansive, tall and wide oak tree. Usually oak trees do not grow in that fashion. They don't grow both tall and wide. Um, but historically, the Angel Oak was um used as a place of worship for enslaved Black people. But if you had uppity Negroes, let me connect these together, um, if you had uh, enslaved people that wanted to step out of their station or were disobedient um, to their masters, then they were hung from the very same tree where, where uh, enslaved people worshiped. Well, a lot of people, including myself, I am so guilty on this one, and I'm, I'm learning to change my language on this. Um, a lot of people mention low-hanging fruit as something that's easy to do, you know, like especially in in workplaces or, you know, let's say um, you're going after your very first uh, triathlon and you're like, okay, I'm going to do this super sprint as my first just to, you know, this is going to be low-hanging fruit, something where I know I can finish. Um, it gives me some confidence to go to the next race. Well, Yes, understood that this is a quick win, you know, maybe something easy peasy that you can uh, get a, a quick return on. Um, but low hanging fruit has also been connected to the language of strange fruit. All right, strange fruit. Um, so if you have not heard the song uh, sung by Billie Holiday, then you should. Um, strange fruit actually was a, I always get this wrong. Is it a metaphor or an analogy for um, those that were lynched. Um, metaphor, thank you. I get it wrong. Yeah, yeah, I need help. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm not sure if it's a metaphor or an analogy, but um, it is to parallel the experience of seeing what would visually be strange fruit. You know, imagine looking up at a tree and you're expecting, oh, it's an orange tree. It's a lemon tree. Oh, no, it's a people tree, because there are individuals who look like me um, that are hanging from that tree. That is strange. Um, and so given that um, Billie Holiday's song, um, she was actually banned from many venues um, for, uh, for singing this song in particular. They would not allow her to perform in certain places, or they would not allow her to sing specifically the second verse of that song that talked about the bulging eyes and twisted mouth of uh, those that were hanging from trees. And so given that, that's why I am working very hard not to use the language of low-hanging fruit. I rather use quick win or, or something that's easy or quick return, something, something different mm -hmm. than low-hanging fruit, because that is, uh, that can be a direct 
reference to the strange fruit of lynching and yeah. the history of lynching here in the U.S. So, yeah, yeah. that one's very sticky. So, yeah, w- was that the kind of the first time you'd heard of uh, Billie Holiday's song or how did you make the connection? No, there? <laughs> I knew about Billie Holiday's song. I had just not connected strange fruit and low hanging. Oh, like, yeah. okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Absolutely. it makes total sense to me. And certainly I was just almost said it again the other day and I was like, nope think of a different way to say it right there you go Um, good job good job so um this one I think is interesting um the use of the term master right um yeah how Mm -hmm. we how that term is like mastermind master bedroom master bathroom like the golfing tournament the masters right educational degrees master degrees and how the term master is obviously very male in uh, male centric and it's obviously um it conveys this level of skill and knowledge and um the being really good at something so we've already kind of like masculinized knowledge and skill but it's also connected to slavery right because um particularly when we think about master bedroom or master bathroom or anything in reference to somewhere in the house when you have um, uh, someone, you know, an enslaved people and they're referencing the master, they're referencing the master's house, maybe they work in the house. And so that is connected to the ways in which um, that hierarchy existed, right? And particularly was oppressive to enslaved people. And I know that real estate as a profession has really started to move away from master bedroom and master bathroom. And now they're saying things like, owner's bedroom and bathroom, primary bedroom and bathroom, um, and a lot of other organizations are no longer using it, but we still see it in the golfing tournament. We still still hear, um, you know, master's degrees are still master's degrees. Um, And I'm wondering what you think about that one, Shauna. Oh, as far as um, master's degrees in particular or master's altogether, because I got some choice words on the Masterminding, uh, well, yes, all the of that. Use of the use of the word master to convey knowledge and skill or ownership. Yeah, I. I <laughs> well, you know, I have we not taking ownership too damn far here? I mean, it's you know, I I can understand owning skill sets, right? Or, um, you know, but mastering something in this country has its origins has usually been about mastering human beings owning human beings and so you know I think there's a lot to it I even kind of bristled a little bit earlier this week where um, a fellowship that I'm finishing right now they do in fact have masterminds mastermind groups and I was like we are a uh, a women's empowerment entrepreneurship organization that's still using language of mastermind so eh, I I would prefer not to use it but I'm also uh really trying to find language that would be a great substitute you know so uh yeah I I don't and even when it comes to and I love golf by the way y'all but yeah every time I hear you know the master's tournament I'm thinking okay well that doesn't include people like me this must include primarily white people who even have the possibility of historically being masters, but I ain't one of them. So, you know, right, it just, right. it does give this connotation of insider outsider status damn near immediately, um, which I don't care for. <laughs> so yeah, right. I, I, I'm just, I'm, 
uh, I'm stretching for a replacement for the word. That's, that's my mm-hmm. challenge here. I, I don't yeah. care for it, but I also need a replacement. Yeah. Um, you know, and <laughs> even with my, um, my realtor, you know, talking about that um, master bedroom shift, for example, you know, in a house, that type of thing. It's like, mm, th- there can be other options there. Um, so yeah, we have to think about the, the uh, English language quite differently when it comes to that. Yeah. You have one, one more that you want to share for the road and then we'll do our hell, our hell yeah and hell no. Oh, yes, indeedy. So yeah, so this is the the last one that um, I think is really interesting, and I'm not sure what to do with it. Um, so call a spade a spade, right? That one's interesting to me because in the Black community, call a spade a spade is is pretty common. And there are other um, branches of connotations that go along with that. So for example, um, Lisa, if, if, if you were a black person, Lisa, you would be my ace, right? Which means you're my first, you're um, my closest, you're um, my closest and most valuable. You know, you're the person that I would connect with first. You're my, um, and th- this might be other language we need to eliminate too. As a black person, you would be considered my ace boom coon, right? That means that you are my sidekick. We we down for whatever together, right? And so all of these references to blackness and the spade on a card game is really interesting to me because it has been this derogatory code word. And so again, this goes back to context and who's using it, right? It would right, not right. It, it, it would not even remotely phase me if I heard another black person say call a spade a spade or that's my ace or my ace in the hole, for example. I probably would not register that language. If I had if I heard a white person saying it or a non-black person saying either of those phrases, spade a spade or ace. I'd be like, wait a minute, hold up, hold up, hold up. Do you understand what that really means? And so I'm not arguing for or against the language. I'm just realizing that I have to really check myself as to what I become desensitized to based on the context and the person using it and the things that I'm most sensitive to based on the context and people using it. Mm -hmm. So I have some work to do in that area, but yeah, the, the call a spade a spade comes from the 1920s way back and um, became the equivalent of a black person, which I think is really interesting. So we got some work to do there. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I think you're making a great point, right? Like the, the term within the black community means something different than if a white person or a non-black person used it. Right. Because then it becomes, then it takes on a more derogatory um, Mm -hmm. nature. Mm -hmm. And so these are all the things, this is the context, right? This is the, Mm -hmm. the the history is different um, depending on where you're looking, but ultimately, what does it mean now in 2022 in the context, who's being harmed by it? And Mm -hmm. are you listening to folks and being a good ally and changing your language, right? And Mm -hmm. even, I mean, even if no one's harmed by it, right, you shouldn't be saying lynch mob. (laughs) I mean, like, let's be clear, right? Right. Um, So, you know, I think this is important and there are a ton of um, idioms and such on here we haven't gotten to so maybe we'll do a part two of this but um, oh, yeah. there is a lot of information on the interwebs blogs and newspaper articles and mm-hmm. linguistic academic articles related to all of this stuff so you certainly can go down a thousand and one rabbit holes with regard to understanding their historic 
um, problems with certain language and indeed how mm. fairly benign language um, has evolved over time given the US context of slavery. So, all right, what Absolutely. do we got this week for hell yeah and hell no? Nah? Hell yeah. Hell no. Nah. Oh, so let me give y'all the hell no nah that I am not cool with. Not cool with y'all. So, Let's go into athletics, all right? So Lolo Jones, right? Many of us know Lolo Jones, the Olympian, right? Um, Olympic hurdler, and she's also a bobsledder as well. Um, I happen to run across her Instagram page as I'm mindlessly scrolling, Lisa. You know how I might do that in the middle of the night. Uh, and um, mindlessly scrolling, I found her story, her recent story about why she started IVF. And she said, quote, I feel like I'm running out of time, right? And so where my hell gnaw fits in is not about her taking charge of her 39-year young body. My hell gnaw and frustration is about the bullying that's happening in response to her making choices about her own body. So given that, you know, she admits that if you want to start a family, you know, you may not be able to do it for career reasons, especially as an athlete, or maybe you just haven't met the right person that you want um, to create a family with, which is completely fine. Well, back in May, when she started sharing her journey, primarily in support of other women, she revealed that she was getting constant abuse and bullying specifically from men who teased her about this, men who teased her about her decision um, to go through IVF. And then, uh, you know, taking a step back, Lisa, men that uh, teased her about her decision to abstain from sex until marriage, as her value said. I got a problem with this. And this kind of goes back to our previous uh, podcast episode of Damned If You Do, Damned If You Don't, in relation to her own body. So, uh, I, I want to do a whole lot of cussing in regards to anybody who is uh, taunting her, abusing her, bullying her about her experience. Yes, she's putting her experience out there on social media because she wanted to share it with other women um, and other individuals who may choose to freeze their eggs. Um, but yeah, the the teasing seems to be about both the IVF and her choice not to have premarital sex and it's a damn shame. It's a damn shame. I'm I'm whew, I'm trying to be articulate about it, but it's maddening that people have a problem with what a woman chooses to do with her body. Yeah, and I think I think bullying is an appropriate term. Like I think I think teasing mm. undersells it, you know, like it's Yeah. It's yeah, yeah, none, yeah. Of, none of your damn business. So Right. The heck none yeah. Right? right. None yeah. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Um, well, and our hell yeah this week is a shout out to Vic Bromfeld, um, who was formerly the chief of staff at USAT Triathlon and a outspoken uh, speaker and um, friend of Unfazed and Outspoken. And she mm -hmm. was recently um, placed or promoted into the interim USA Triathlon CEO role because Rocky Harris has stepped down and gone to the Olympic, US Olympic and Paralympic. Uh, committee. Mm. So we are super psyched for Vic. Um, I, I'm pretty sure that she's the first woman CEO in USAT history. So that is oh. outstanding trailblazing um, and about time USAT. But 
Massive yeah. shout out, massive hell yeah to Vic. We're really excited for you. You're going to kill it. We know it. Ooh, you're going to kill it. That is a violent Ooh. language. You're going to do great. You are going to do there great. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Um, so congratulations, yes. Vic. We're behind you. Let us know how we can support you as you yes. um, transform yes. USA Triathlon. Do you want to get more out of your rides this summer? Any old device can track distance, time, and pace. But how about the ability to see the upcoming hills or points of interest along your route? The Hammerhead Caro 2 helps you find your path forward and unlock your full potential on every ride. The Hammerhead Caro 2 is the most advanced GPS cycling computer available today with industry-leading mapping, navigation, and routing capabilities that set it apart from other GPS options. Free global maps with points of interest included like cafes or campsites mean you can explore with confidence and on-the-go flexibility. So one of the really neat things about the Hammerhead is that it sends bi-weekly software updates, and I've definitely noticed those in my emails. And so they have these new feature releases, and those are unmatched by the competition. So unlike other head units, your Karu 2 continues to evolve and improve with each ride better than the last. So this is an exclusive limited time offer only for our podcast listeners. So don't forget to use promo code UNFAZED that's a free heart rate monitor with the purchase of a Karu 2. Go to hammerhead.io, add both items to your cart, and use promo code UNFAZED today. UNFAZED, a podcast produced by Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Millie Perry. Email us at info at umphasepodcast.com and find us on social media at try to defy at Dr. Gold Speaks or at Outspoken Women and Try. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time.